Oh my god. Her butt. Trump's efforts to try to overthrow the results of the free and fair election in 2020 are emerging. Folks, there are more recordings of Donald Trump than we've even learned about before. New recordings are dropping. These recordings involve Donald Trump threatening two canvassers from Wayne County, Michigan, by the name of Monica Palmer and William Hartman. These were the Republican County canvassers from Wayne County. There are audio recordings of Donald Trump intimidating them, harassing them. Him and Ronna McDaniel were on this phone call talking to them, saying that it would be terrible if they signed the election certifications for the results in Wayne County, saying that Donald Trump would find lawyers for them and would help them out, and they need to do what they can to fight for our country. We can't let these people take their country away from us. And I want to share with you again, in real time, what was taking place. On November 18th, 2020, Donald Trump tweeted the following, quote, the numbers have not improved. It is still 71% out of balance, stated Wayne County, Michigan canvassers. There is widespread irregularities and poll numbers. There are more votes than people. The two harassed Patriot canvassers refuse to sign the papers. Look, I know that Donald Trump has engaged in so much heinous criminal conduct across the country, in counties across the country, in counties across swing states. So sometimes we forget about all this information, but this was just one example of Donald Trump putting out blatantly false information. The things he's quoting are false quotes. They're attributed to people, I guess, engaged in defamatory conduct. This is Donald Trump engaged in false and fraudulent statements. This is not true at all. Pure conspiracy, pure deranged conspiracy right here. But Donald Trump's statements at this time relate closely. We are now learning to a call that Trump was on with Ronna McDaniel threatening these two GOP canvassers. These two GOP canvassers don't deny that's what took place. After all, this is on an audio recording. Hat tip to the Detroit News. Local news breaking a story serving Michigan since 1873. Give a shout out to Detroit News for breaking this. Support the Detroit News for stories just like this. Here's what they're reporting. Great work, Craig Mauger. I wanted to state that again. Craig Mauger with the great scoop. Trump recorded pressuring Wayne County canvassers not to certify the 2020 vote. Then President Donald Trump personally pressured two Republican members of the Wayne County Board of Canvassers to sign the certifications of the 2020 presidential election, not to sign the certifications of the 2020 presidential election, according to recordings reviewed by the Detroit News and revealed publicly for the first time. On November 17, 2020, a phone call which also involved Republican National Committee Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel. By the way, she's from Michigan. Trump told Monica Palmer and Will William Hartman, the two GOP Wayne County canvassers, that they would look, quote, terrible if they signed the documents after they first voted in opposition and then later in the same meeting voted to approve the certification of the county's election results, according to these recordings. 
quote, and Trump and Rana are on tape saying this, quote, we've got to fight for our country, said Trump on the recordings made by a person who was present for the call with Palmer and Hartman, quote, we can't let these people take our country away from us. Then Rana McDaniel, a Michigan native and the leader of the Republican Party nationally, she chimes in on the call and says, if you can go home tonight, do not sign it, referring to certifying the results in Wayne County. We will get you attorneys, to which Trump is heard on the recording saying, quote, we will take care of that, meaning we will hire lawyers for you. By the way, this is a tactic that Donald Trump has used with his political action committee money, engaging in this obstructive effort, hiring lawyers to represent various witnesses, spending anywhere between 60 to 150 million dollars in legal fees from political action committees and action committees affiliated with him to hire lawyers for himself and for witnesses and for other people who could be and should be sharing this accurate information with prosecutors and with the public goes on to say remember what remember what happened in michigan here in wayne county where you had palmer and hartman first were against certifying the results it was a four-person board of canvassers in Wayne County. So there were two Democrats, two Republicans. And at first, the two Republicans were saying they were going to vote against certification. And then during the meeting, they finally, on November 17, 2020, they changed their mind. And then they said, all right, we will agree to certify the results of the election after they received a lot of pressure to do so because they were blatantly violating the law. And then they get this phone call from Ronna McDaniel and Trump. We didn't know about this phone call until now. We didn't know about these recordings until now. But then later, after they agreed on a Zoom that we all saw agreeing to certify the results, then after they got that call and that recording that we now know about, they refused to sign the th just refused to sign the thing they said they were going to sign or they wanted to retract their names from certifying the results in Wayne County. And then it was basically decided, no, you already agreed to this. And there's no reason why you would retract your certification of the results of Wayne County. So that was rejected. But they succumbed to the pressure of Trump and Rana. They weren't ultimately successful in retracting the certification. But you see how that direct pressure campaign by Donald Trump impacted impacted them and so it shows you how like in Wayne County Michigan across the country Trump was involved in these efforts and just so you remember the results in Michigan uh, President Biden um, won by 154,000 votes, 154,000 votes. Yet Donald Trump tried to spread these deranged conspiracies throughout uh, the country, especially in Michigan, that, oh, the double counting and, and, and secret satellites were, said, were changing votes from Trump to Biden and, and all of these ridiculous, deranged conspiracy theories. One of the things that the Detroit News confirmed is that the timestamp of the first recording was 9.55 p.m. on November 17, 2020. The time was consistent with Verizon phone records obtained by a U.S. House committee that showed Palmer received calls from Ronna McDaniel at 9.53 p.m. and 10.04 p.m. Palmer acknowledged to the Detroit News that she and Hartman took the call from Trump in a vehicle and that other people entered 
entered the vehicle and could have heard the conversation. She said she cannot, however, identify who entered the vehicle or who else might have heard the conversation. Now, um, this news right here, of course, is the type of evidence that special counsel Jack Smith already has. You know, special counsel Jack Smith has subpoenaed all of these records. And I just want you to think how compelling the trial is going to be for Donald Trump's attempt to overthrow the results of the 2020 election. This is yet another example, and I think we will see many more of these recordings start to emerge. Think about how much we don't know right now. Like, if we thought we knew everything about what happened in 2020, think about the, the remaining documents that special counsel Jack Smith has that we will start to learn about over the next coming weeks as we get closer and closer to that March 4th, 2024 trial, even if it gets pushed back 45 to 60 or even 90 days, we're going to start to learn about all of the horrific ways, the traitorous ways, the treasonous ways that Donald Trump just directly got involved. The Wayne County Commissioner uh, stated the following, Jonathan Kinlock, who was a Democratic member of the Wayne County Board of Canvassers in November 2020, said what happened on that call with Trump was, quote, insane quote it's just shocking that the president of the united states was at the most minute level trying to stop the election process from happening in wayne county and that's the key point at minute levels donald trump was using the office of the presidency to threaten and harass and intimidate local county canvassers from engaging in ministerial tasks of signing their names. This also goes to the issue of absolute presidential immunity. As we know, for example, in the civil context, in the blasting game case, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals has held that election and campaigning activity falls outside the outer perimeter of the roles of Article 2 of the roles of the president. So clearly, in a civil context, for example, Donald Trump engaging in interference with local county canvassers, state and local issues, is not within the province of any presidential immunity or authority. This gives more credence, of course, there was already overwhelming credence, but this gives more credence that in the criminal context of absolute presidential immunity, layer on again what Judge Tanya Chutkin, the federal judge in Washington, D.C., held that former presidents are not entitled to absolute presidential immunity from criminal conduct while they were in office. So as this, as this issue is presented to the Supreme Court, which Donald Trump wants to delay, or the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, facts like this exactly what Jonathan Kinlock, the Democratic member of the Wayne County Board of Canvassers, says, this is shocking. You've got someone who's holding the office of the presidency, calling local county canvassers, telling them not to certify the results. And then Donald Trump's going to try to claim that's within the outer perimeter of presidential power. Think about how compelling Jack Smith's argument to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals will be using evidence just like what we read, using audio recordings just like this as examples of Donald Trump's conduct. So I want you all to be ready 
for bombshell after bombshell that will be breaking in the coming weeks and months. If you thought you knew everything and we thought we knew everything about what went down leading up to the insurrection, Donald Trump's conduct in trying to overthrow the results of the 2020 election, folks, what we know to date is just the tip of the iceberg, and we will be getting a lot more audio recordings just like this. And by the way, the recordings that were viewed by the Detroit News, um, which covered four minutes of a longer exchange, could have lasted no longer than 11 minutes, according to the phone record. So it's about four minutes to 11 minutes that are on this audio recording, um, and it is filled with very, very, very devastating information. Donald Trump saying, how can anybody sign something when you have more votes than people? Again, saying like deranged conspiracy, you know, you know, deranged conspiracy, stuff like that, and pressuring them. I mean, it is, it is deeply disturbing. It is frankly criminal. And this is the type of conduct special counsel Jack Smith will show to the Washington, D.C. jury in the criminal case, folks. Things are going to be heating up. We'll be here with you each step of the way in the Midas Touch Network. Hit subscribe. We're on our way to 2 million subscribers. Thanks to your support and have a great day. Hey, Midas Mighty. Love this report. Continue the conversation by following us on Instagram. At Midas She don't need no Instagram. Are you going to let the greedy heating companies and their crazy high prices decide if your family is allowed to stay warm this winter? We are just learning in a matter of hours, several Americans will land on U.S. soil in San Antonio, Texas. This is part of an historic prisoner swap after spending time in a Venezuelan jail. Why the U.S. has agreed to release a man who prosecutors accuse of playing a role in a multi-million dollar law trumps politics. I'm Jessica Denson, and this is Lights On. One of the greatest cons Donald Trump still gets away with, even among his critics, is that he is a political outsider. When I came to my senses about who this man really is, it was one of the first things I recognized. In his decades of deceitful and manipulative business practices, Donald Trump lived and breathed everything we hate about politics. In his constant bid to stay relevant and avoid the legal and financial fate he was legitimately due, he was a textbook case of corrupt politicians. From cheating the system, to abusing his power for personal gain, to the bluster of how to overpromise and underdeliver and most shamelessly, how to always get over on the little guy. Politics, the worst kind, is what Donald Trump knows and does best. But this week, his best politics failed. The ground shifted when the Colorado Supreme Court confirmed that Donald Trump engaged in insurrection and ruled that he is disqualified from holding office under the 14th Amendment. The law trumped politics in a way that our democracy has been hungering and thirsting for, in a true victory for the people it serves. And yet, Donald Trump, his crooked allies, and sadly, many of those little guys that Trump still has conned into holding water for him, claim that this beacon of constitutional order is, yes, you guessed it, political. Well, it is anything but political. 
what the four brave justices in Colorado affirmed was not a mere judicial opinion, but a constitutional demand, an exercise of the safeguard to protect our nation from a tyrant who threatens to destroy it all. When I woke up from the con I believed in 2016, you better believe I only wished that there had been something to keep Trump out of the race back then. That the law had not been so slow to keep up with the corrupt politics of Donald Trump. Disqualification from office is not some political edge for Trump's opponents. It is the means for the very survival of our democracy. And a legal protection for those very voters who are still being defrauded into believing for one second that Donald Trump will put the country's interests above his own. Politics got Donald Trump this far. Thank God we now have, well, thank God we have the law and the Constitution to stop him now. Thank God we also have very brave men and women bringing these historical and necessary challenges in the courts, among them the extraordinary group Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington who represented the plaintiffs in Colorado. My guest today is the Chief Counsel and Vice President of CREW. He's making Donald great again. Donald Sherman, welcome back to Lights On. Such a pleasure to have you back. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I want to know, Donald, I mean, you you guys at Crew really brought us, brought this country an early Christmas present this year. Um, I, I kind of just want to know, what was your reaction on Tuesday when you first got the news? Well, uh, excuse me. Um, thanks for that. And, um, you know, to be honest with you, um, like, any working parent, I was making dinner for my for my family, <laughs> and um, and then just watching my phone. I knew the decision was coming. Got a couple of text messages. Um, I didn't want to trust the first one, so waited until uh, the second colleague uh, said that we had won, um, and then you know let out a sigh of relief, hugged my wife, and um, and then proceeded to do what we always do, which is get on the phone and talk about next steps. Um, you know, certainly we were thrilled. Our clients were thrilled. Um, and you know, this, this case was really about them and Colorado, uh, state law, um, and their rights being vindicated. But yeah, um, you know, it was, uh, in many ways, it was just like any other Tuesday, except, you know, once we knew that a decision was coming, I had a, a lump in my throat and tried to distract myself with doing the things that any normal working parent would do. Um, it, I don't know that it succeeded, but, you know, was also glad to see that, um, that the Colorado Supreme court ruled in our clients favor vindicating their rights as voters and vindicating the constitution in section three of the 14th amendment hi frank george here this is the ems foot massager ems is electrical muscle stimulation it's low frequency treatment designed to stimulate your feet and ankles achilles tendons calf muscles and increased blood circulation it elicits muscle contractions it's effective for muscle strengthening too it's used for rehabilitation purposes, preventing muscle atrophy and muscle toning. It is suggested to be used once a day. It's got a 15-minute auto run timer. In this box, you get an EMS foot massager mat. It is foldable like this. 
The main device unit is here. It is digital and lightweight and easy, easy to operate. And a great user manual also, and a USB cable for charging the internal battery. My wife is on her feet daily for long periods of time. She really loves it, and I use it too. EMS is proven and effective. Get yours today. You'll absolutely love it. I like it. It's mine. The prices blow my mind. I feel so rich. I feel like a billionaire. I'm shopping like a billionaire. I'm shopping like a billionaire. That must have been so special. I know that feeling when you're waiting for an opinion to come out and you it can either be like your your heart dropping to your stomach or it can just be total elation or somewhere in between and and um that must have been so amazing for you. Um, I really want to delve into that opinion. Last time we had you on, of course, it was right after the district court ruled. They made that major factual finding that Donald Trump did, of course, engage in insurrection, but failed to um, account the presidency as an office. This kind of ridiculous reading of Section 3 um, that said that would exempt the very most important office of the presidency from this disqualification clause. And of course, uh, the Supreme Court in a 4-3 ruling overturned that aspect and did go ahead and disqualify Donald Trump. I really want to um, get into the weeds of this decision a little bit. But before I do, um, Donald, can you just tell me what stood out to you when you first read it? Sure. Uh, you know, I think the thing that stood out to me was there wasn't a lot of disagreement um, about whether Donald Trump had engaged in insurrection, even though there were three dissents. Two of them were on state law grounds, which is obviously uh, a sort of dead issue uh, looking ahead to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and then, you know, the the other dissent was, um, you know, sort of a, a mishmash of, of various arguments, but focus on process. Um, but really... Um, no court that has reached the merits of this case or you know, reviewed a robust record um, has reached the con any other conclusion than that Donald Trump is an insurrectionist. Um, and so, you know, if, if there is a sort of second takeaway, it is that Donald Trump is an insurrectionist. Uh, you know, it confirmed what we all saw uh, in the days leading up to and on January 6th what Judge Wallace uh, ruled in her district court des decision, despite um, despite uh, you know finding that Section 3 didn't apply to the President of the United States or the Office of the Presidency. Um, but yeah, you know, having that confirmed uh, or uncontested by all of the uh, justices was especially uh, important and validating as more states wrestle with this question and as, um, and as the nation wrestle, wrestles with how do we move on from the January 6th attack on the Capitol? 
Yeah, when you read that opinion, um, it reiterates all of that um, very fleshed out case that you made in that five day trial as to why factually Donald Trump did engage in insurrection. Uh, one of the things they wrote in the opinion is, as our detailed recitation of the evidence shows, President Trump did not merely incite the insurrection. His actions constituted overt, voluntary and direct participation in the insurrection. And in another part, they wrote he had the, quote, specific intent to engage in, quote, imminent lawless action. Um, when you really, you know, a lot of people are going to try to put their own spin, as I was alluding to in the open on what this means. But when you look at the breadth of the illegality Donald Trump um, engaged in, in, in disregard of his oath to subvert our democracy, um, disqualification from office is the minimum uh, that we can, that we can um, give in exchange for somebody like him. Um, I wanted to um, address uh, one of the things that they obviously were looking to the Supreme Court for where this goes next. And um, actually, before I get into a specific footnote or a specific note that they made on one of the justices, I just want to get your thoughts on um, the Supreme Court taking up this case and where it uh, and and how how they they rule on this, Donald. Well, because we won, uh, the ball is in the former president's. Uh, court and the Colorado Supreme Court has effectively given him a deadline of January fourth to um, to file for cert or the stay is lifted and the decision goes into effect. Um, so we are waiting um, and working and planning uh, for anticipated next steps. Um, but you know, as I said to you before. Section the the strongest arguments in support of Donald Trump's disqualification are mostly originalist arguments. Um, you know, most people that read the plain text of Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment reach the obvious conclusion uh, that Donald Trump engaged in insurrection. January sixth was an insurrection, and that uh, he should be disqualified. This has been confirmed by you know the powerful piece written by Professors Bowden Paulson this summer, uh, followed by additional public commentary by uh, former Circuit Court, Court Judge uh, Michael Ludig and Professor Tribe, um, and you know it really just sort of easily understood by. Um, most of the folks that sort of read this and confirmed by the historical record as uh, evidenced by the testimony of Gerard Magliaca, who was an expert witness in our trial, and Mark Graber, who uh, was an expert witness in our trial in New Mexico last year, and uh, and Amiki in this case. Um, you know, the experts that have studied this and studied Section 3 before January 6th you know, confirm that uh, the that both the text and the history of Section 3's ratification support uh, the finding that the Colorado Supreme Court reached, which is that January 6th was an insurrection and that Donald Trump engaged in it. Yeah, I really liked the way that these justices in Colorado opened um, this opinion. They said, quote, we do not reach these conclusions lightly. We are mindful of the magnitude and weight of the questions now before us. We are likewise mindful of our solemn duty to apply the law without fear or favor and without being swayed by public reaction to the decisions that the law 
mandates we reach. Um, I think that's such a powerful sentiment, a sentiment that um, must be on the minds of the Supreme Court justices when they most likely inevitably reach this case. Um, they really have to be absent from public opinion and apply the Constitution. And as you were saying, you know, I thought about that too, as, as I was preparing for this talk with you today, Donald, is, is the conversations we had before we started in the summer, before you brought this case, um, just kind of really reviewing the conservative scholars who, who brought this to the forefront after you had um, initiated your work. Um, and then, as you mentioned, Judge Ludig, along with Professor Tribe, who we've also had on lights on to share the merits of this case. I mean, this, this is a contextual, uh, I'm sorry, an originalist uh, reading of the Constitution um, that should be very much in line with conservative thinking, um, not to mention any legitimate and um, necessary reading of the Constitution. And and that's really what is is being demanded of, of the justices that will eventually see this case, isn't it, Donald? I think that's exactly right. I thought the uh, the majority in the Colorado Supreme Court also leaned quite heavily on uh, then Judge Gorsuch's opinion in the Hassan case, making right. clear that states have this authority and not just have this authority, but have a strong interest in exercising this authority to ensure that only eligible candidates, only constitutionally qualified candidates get on the ballot. Uh, you know, for better, for worse, we have a constitution and we have courts for these hard questions. Um, and the Colorado Supreme Court wrestled with them and we believe reached the right conclusion. Um, and it's our expectation that the U.S. Supreme Court will wrestle with these questions and reach the, the right conclusion based on the facts and the law without fear or favor uh, and without consideration of the uh you know uh, uh, of the sort of political element here right I, you know again we are only here because of donald trump and his actions and so to oh, the extent fair. that you know the uh, there are political ramifications for the former president or people who s support him despite the fact that he engaged in insurrection that is the price that we have to pay for having a constitution and for enforcing it even when it's difficult and for having it the rule of law and that those are the consequences that the former president has to pay for engaging in an insurrection which we the nation and the world watched in horror as it happened yeah i often say donald on lights on that uh, donald trump is engaged in a cr criminal impunity plan where he um you know repeatedly tries to use politics to get out of legal accountability. Um, so it's it's not uh, you know political to save our democracy from his tyranny, um, his actions to avoid being accountable to the constitution and the law are political. Um, Absolutely. And you know, one, one thing that you know I think gets lost is ballot challenges happen in every state in every election yeah. all the time. They usually are adjudicated without much incident. It's not like the Hassan case got a lot of attention when it was brought because, you know, Hassan was some random guy running for president. Yeah. Um, but if we're to be a constitutional democracy, the law has to apply, whether it's some random guy who has no chance of winning um, or the front runner for a major political party. Right. The Constitution is the thing that is at least so far as I was told, is meant to make us equal in the eyes of the law. And so if that's the case, then 
Donald Trump needs to be treated the same way that anybody else would. Absolutely. And, and, um, you brought up that Gorsuch reference that I wanted to highlight. Um, the justices, of course, name-checking current Justice Gorsuch, who was previously a judge in Colorado when he ruled in the Hassan case. And he said, quote, it's a state's legitimate interest in protecting the integrity and practical functioning of the political process that, quote, permits it to exclude from the ballot candidates who are constitutionally prohibited from assuming office. So there you have, um, you know, Trump-appointed ju Justice Gorsuch on the record, um, making the very case that uh, that that Section Three um, and any aspect of the Fourteenth Amendment um, must be enforced. There are a lot of ironies here. <laughs> that being one of them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a lot of gosh, so many questions I have for you, Donald, on on how this plays out. Okay, so you mentioned that right now um, the the decision is stayed until January 4th. I think the next day, correct me if I'm wrong, is the deadline for the Colorado Secretary of State to certify the primary ballot? That's correct. Okay. And then um, and then it will also be stayed indefinitely beyond that if and when Trump appeals, right? That's that's correct as well. Okay. So, so let's just play this out for a minute. What happens um, if... You know, he, we obviously all expect him to appeal. Um, he gets put on the um, primary ballot. Does his name, um, if, if this decision is upheld by the Supreme Court, will his name then be able to be taken off the ballot in the interim from January 5th to, I think, June when Colorado holds its primary? Hi guys, I'm Danny, constructing adventures here in New York City. Today we're testing the Star Wars lore of these enthusiastic fans, so grab your lightsabers and let's go. We're here with Anakin and Padme for our trivia with question number one. Who killed Jabba the Hutt? That was Leia Ordana. That is correct. Question number two. What does Obi-Wan Kenobi go by on Tatooine? Ben Kenobi. That is correct. Yeah! <laughs> Who is Luke and Leia's mother? Nick, it's Padme. <laughs> that is correct. It's Padme Amidala. Next trivia question. All stormtroopers are clone. No. That is correct. Congratulations. You just won yourself a prize. Check this out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Next trivia question. What is the name of this Lego set? And that concludes our star-studded tour through a galaxy not so far away. But don't worry, guys, there's plenty more content, so stay tuned. Uh, well, the Colorado primary is actually March 5th. Oh, March. Uh, I'm so sorry. So, you know, My calendar dates are off. Fine. Time is certainly a factor, and it's one yeah. of the reasons why, you know, we hope and expect that the court will hear, um, you know, if there is a cert petition, and we expect there will be, uh, here's the case quickly, and we are preparing to brief it qu quickly. Um but yeah, if his name is sent, so the January 5th deadline is when the secretary has identified um, that she needs to send the names to the printer so that the ballots can be printed. Right. But, um, but that doesn't, but there are also a couple of interim sort of benchmarks, um, including in February when people actually start voting. And so, you know, there's some time built in there, such that even if Trump's name is on the ballot, that uh, voters will have notice 
of whether he is an eligible candidate or an ineligible candidate so that they can make an informed choice of only the qualified candidates um, as they cast their primary ballots. But there have also been instances where, um, and there's a, a state law and I think party procedure in place if Trump's name is on the ballot and he's disqualified after that inflection point in, in mid-February. And so it really sort of depends on what happens and when, but uh, there are answers to that question depending on um, when uh, when a decision is rendered. And obviously if the court rules against us, um, then you know the election will proceed uh, with, and, 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 you know, with, with great simplicity, I guess. Okay, I have a lot more questions about how this applies not only in Colorado, but other states, but sticking to Colorado for a minute, you mentioned the party rules, and I actually saw an article that said that the Colorado Republican Party is threatening not to um, honor the primary results if Donald Trump is removed from the ballot, and um, what I read at least says that they, they may have a legal leg to stand on here because it ultimately, in the primary, comes down to their party rules, and they could switch to a and just, um, you know, by delegate choose Donald Trump as their candidate, even if if he has not won what they charged candidates $40,000 to for to appear on the, the primary ballot. Um, so yeah, is, is that a possibility that that uh, the Republican Party in Colorado could could uh, choose him anyway? Yes, um, I admittedly, I'm not well steeped on their party rules. I think one of the things that um, one of the standards that was made clear in this process is while, you know, the party has an associational First Amendment right, they don't have the right to force the Secretary of State to put a disqualified candidate on the ballot. And so, you know, they can do what they want to do and they can award their delegates how they want to award them, um, whether that's through a caucus or some other uh, process, you know, and you know whether that is to the detriment of uh, Colorado voters or to other uh, Republican primary candidates, I leave to others to to decide. Um, but yeah, they can choose how to award their delegates, however they see fit, um, and you know. But ultimately, Trump's got to be on a ballot in order to become president, and so like they can make that choice but it may end up biting them in the end. Okay. I still have a lot more questions about how this technically plays out. If we can, I mean, kind of when the answer to that kind of leads me to, is there a scenario, Donald, where Donald Trump has, and I, I want to get also back to SCOTUS and how that does or does not affect different states and possibly disparate opinions in different states. But is there a scenario where Donald Trump has remained on the ballot um, in Colorado or any other state, um, primary or general, and either gets elected as the party nominee or as the president, but there is a ruling from the Supreme Court saying that he's disqualified, then what happens? I mean, there's just so many unknowns to me. I mean, because obviously this these, these proceedings to keep him off the ballot are a logical deduction from section three which has nothing to do with ballots it's about holding office sure but it's the logical deduction is okay if you can't hold office then you can't be on the ballot but um you know could we could we be in this crisis where he's actually either elected or on the ballot but not qualified per a supreme court ruling so 
I think the practical answer to your question is if there is a Supreme Court decision, whether it is um, before the primary or after, that um, finds that Donald Trump is disqualified from serving as president, um, from a practical perspective, it's hard to imagine that um, he gets elected president, right? Um, and, and, you know, th there are some state law questions that would uh, arise from that, but it's just hard to get to 270 um, once the Supreme Court has said he's disqualified. Um, and every state is different in terms of how they administer elections. But it's just it, like then it becomes sort of a math, uh, an, an electoral and a math question. Um, and it just as as I heard on uh, Twitter this week, sometimes the math doesn't math and the math won't math there. <laughs> the math won't math. Okay. <laughs> well, um, I am a lover of math, so um, <laughs> uh, let's let's let math math. Um, all right. So going to, I mean, I'm really curious if this, if the justices do what is their duty, and I, I really want to, you know, maybe at the end of this, I'm going to let you give us one of your eloquent speeches about judicial <laughs> duty and, and what, what's at stake here. But if the justices do their duty and they uphold in the Supreme Court, the uh, Colorado Supreme Court decision, um, because this case in Colorado was so centered on Colorado law, and I know crew took so many, um, you know, so much care in choosing Colorado as the state to initially bring this challenge, is will it apply to all states, granted that different states have different election laws? I mean, do you expect a, press, a nationwide precedent-setting decision out of the Supreme Court? So... Yes, I expect a nationwide precedented setting uh, decision on the Supreme Court, but it depends. Uh, but what, like how that manifests in each state depends on state law. So, for example, some state, uh, you know, every state has a different process for ballot challenges, right? Like this is not automatic. Some states give the Secretary of State unilateral authority to make these decisions. Some states don't. Some states require a, um, a ballot challenge hearing where the decision maker is the Secretary of State. Some states like Colorado have sort of a hybrid uh, situation where uh, you know the Secretary of State can make certain decisions based on paperwork and then um, some decisions in, in, uh, but also might get sued uh, in court. Um, some states have at least uh, legal decisions that say that a voter cannot challenge ballot access. Um, and so, you know, regardless of what the Supreme Court says, if there's no cause of action to sue on, um, the challenge wouldn't work. And so really, again, this gets back to the sort of math issue. Uh, the court's holding will, would apply um, but whether it gets to be applied depends on whether state law either affords the uh, a state official unilateral authority to make a decision in which they would consider what the court had said or gives voters or candidates or other candidates an opportunity to sue in court uh, where the um, you know, where the Supreme Court's decision would be binding. But if state law does not create a vehicle for challenge, 
then his placement on the ballot can't be challenged. Can it not be challenged by voters, but it could still rest in the authority of the Secretary of State to make that decision on their own? Sure. Okay. And again, you know, this is how our elections work. Um, but, you know, Article 2 gives states wide latitude to uh, to oversee and administer elections. And, you know, every system is different. This is why some cases have failed and some cases haven't. Uh, but the cases that have failed have never reached the merits, right? So as much as right. Trump has sort of beat his chest every time one of those cases has lost, none of them, you know, they mainly lost on state law grounds or procedural grounds, technicalities that don't allow a court to hear or get to the merits of whether Donald Trump is an insurrectionist. Now that's less of a problem because in a state where um, he was ably represented and there was a, you know, a week long trial and lots of briefings, uh, not just one court, but two courts reached the sort of merits question of whether Donald Trump is an insurrectionist and both uh, concluded that he was. Yeah, absolutely. And as a reminder to our viewers, your case, um, correct me if I'm wrong, is the only one that has reached the merits, the only uh, Section 3 challenge that has reached the merits of whether Donald Trump engaged in insurrection. That's right. Cruz only brought two Section 3 cases, a yeah. case in New Mexico where we successfully removed Coy Griffin from office on behalf of three New Mexico voters last year, and this case on behalf of six Republican and unaffiliated voters, along with our co-counsel, um, that, again, has successfully blocked uh, former President Trump from the ballot. Um, and, you know, There are other cases that are uh, that have happened that are happening, and uh, most of them have, you know, met with procedural or state law hurdles. Um, but, you know, this is, you know, as you said, one of the reasons why we are especially thoughtful about when and where uh, and how to sue. And, um, and you know, our plaintiffs were able and willing to step up and, you know, and really be the face and voice of this litigation. Um, and, you know, we're so grateful to them. I, I imagine a lot of people are. I want to talk about those plaintiffs for a minute because um, I think getting to know who the plaintiffs are is key to understanding um, the merits of this case, why this case is not political. Um, one of the plaintiffs, um, I, I want to name them all, um, is Norma Anderson the former Republican majority leader of the Colorado Senate and House. You also have Krista Koffer, a conservative columnist for the Denver Post. Cla Claudine Schneider Camerata, I may be saying that wrong, a former no, right. Re okay, Republican U.S. representative. Kathy Wright, Michelle Priola, and Christopher Castilian. These are six Republican and non-affiliated voters, not a single Democrat in this bunch. Um, I, I think they deserve enormous credit for having the bravery um, and, um, you know, the integrity to bring forth this challenge. Um, and maybe you can just, just speak a little bit about, uh, about your plaintiffs. I mean, honestly, I can't say enough about them. Um, you know, it's humbling uh, to have the opportunity to represent them. Um, as Norma uh, likes to joke, she's been a Republican for longer than most of her lawyers has been alive. Um, you know, Krista Kafer is someone who voted for Donald Trump, not just in 2016, but in 2020. Um, and after January 6th, reached the conclusion that he um, 
had disqualified himself from office. Claudine Schneider was a, a Republican member of Congress for a decade. Um, you know, each one of our plaintiffs, um, you know, decided to be a part of this litigation because they believed quite strongly, one, in the rule of law, and two, in the fundamental unfairness of putting a disqualified candidate like Donald Trump on a Republican primary ballot. Um, you know, as much as there is, you know, sort of criticism uh, or an attempt to smear this litigation as partisan, um, you know, their Republican bona fides are unassailable. And, um, you know, again, it's just, it, it's an honor to know them. Um, and it's also just quite frustrating how many regular people have to risk so much because Donald Trump refuses to follow the Constitution. Um, and, you know, we, we've seen that, you know, in the in the litigation uh, against, you know, brought by uh, Shane Ross and uh, uh, Ruby Freeman. Just so many people have risked so much. Um, and I'm so grateful to our plaintiffs and, you know, and uh, and to the others who have stood in the breach to protect our democracy. And, you know, to the extent that you're talking about sort of judicial fortitude, this is not about me or, you know, our legal team. This is about them, right? Um, these judges in, in Colorado stood up to vindicate these plaintiffs' rights. Um, and yes. that's what's at stake here. Um, and nothing less than our, our democracy. Yeah. Yeah, well, Donald, as a, as a plaintiff myself and someone who's been standing in that breach, um, in my own cases against Donald Trump, I, I know the sacrifice is great. I also know that it is absolutely 100% worth it and rewarding. And I can't imagine my life if I hadn't have done what I've done. I, I believe it. And, you know, they, you know, people like to say that democracy is work. Well, this is the work. This is the work. Um, and again, it shouldn't be this way. Um, but it is because of Donald Trump's actions. And, you know, I, I, I think I said this on the, the last time we spoke. Section three of the 14th Amendment was built for this moment. And really what this litigation has been about and what, you know, what this what is going to play out is going to be about is whether we are built for this moment. Absolutely. And, and, you know, that, that reminds me of something Norma Anderson said in an interview I just heard, she said, um, she said, I was concerned because of the courage of the courts. Um, and then she's, you know, when she spoke about what this decision means to her, she said, it means democracy. It tells me what our forefathers fought for when they settled this country. Um, Here's an example of what the courts can do to uphold it when they do have courage. And I really want to also give so much credit to these justices. Of course, they just did their job, as you as you describe it. Um, they had the fortitude to Donald, um, but they're also facing threats, increased threats, as as um, is common from Donald Trump and his um, his. Um, often violent army of supporters that he has amassed. He he riles them into um, violent rhetoric and at the worst times, violent actions. Um, and so we've seen increasing threats. There's been spreading of the addresses and phone numbers of these justices. Um, but, you know, when I see this, Donald, I really think, okay, we have to meet this moment. We can't, 
we can't let any of this. And I, I know those those justices in Colorado um, were obviously mindful of threats like this, and they made that that right decision anyway. Um, likewise, the justice of the, of the Supreme Court, we cannot if we're if we're living by threats of violence, then we're just you know we're a banana republic. We 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 can't stand for anything anymore. Yeah, it, it, you know I think that's right. It's you know um, e either we are intimidated into uh, doing Donald Trump's will, which is what he did on January sixth and days before, or we're too intimidated by uh, the threats um, that he and his supporters make to use a tool that was specifically designed to defend our democracy, right? And and so you know. It's unfortunate that we are in this moment, <laughs> but you know, a lot of a lot of people like to be the hero of their own story. Um, but you know, those six plaintiffs and you know the ones that you know successful or not that have put their names forward to see Section Three um, of the Fourteenth Amendment enforced against the former president, um, they are the ones that are prepared to do it and prepared to risk something to do it. Um, and, you know, I commend our plaintiffs and I commend all of them. Absolutely. Um, I want to get to um, an op-ed that you wrote with president of crew, Noah Bookbinder, who's also been a guest here on Lights On, um, about answering some of your critics and what they're sure. getting wrong. And um, I know that one of the main, the main um, criticism is what I addressed in the open, which is this notion that this is a political decision or anti-democratic. Um, let's just start there, Donald. As, as Judge Luttig, I think this week um, came on and said, I think the 14th Amendment in Section 3 is maybe one of the most pro-democracy amendments in our Constitution. Can you tell us why this is not anti-democratic? Sure, and for, for several reasons. One, Section 3 was specifically de designed as a defense mechanism to ensure that people don't use uh, violence or the threat of violence uh, or otherwise engage in rebellion against or insurrection against our founding document. Right? We are a constitutional democracy, and the framers of Section 3 believe that that commitment was so important that if you violate that oath, you cannot serve in government again. You know, the Constitution has only a few qualifications or disqualifications for office. Found them in, you find them in Article 2, uh, the ones that most people know, citizenship, residency, age. Uh, you find them in uh, the 22nd Amendment, saying that you can't be elected twice, and the disqualification clause. There are not that many limitations on who can become president uh, or who can hold office in America. But this one was so important because uh, it it is based on the fundamental principle that if you violate your oath and lead an attack against our democracy, you can no longer be party to serving in that democracy. The other thing that I think and uh, that I would say is people seem to forget uh, the context here. Um, Donald Trump's conduct was anti-democratic. He is the one who fomented a lie 
um, that the election was stolen from him, then recruited a mob and mobilized that mob to violently attack the seat of our democracy, all in the hopes of staying in power despite the votes of 80 plus million Americans to pick someone else. And he, part of that lie was specifically targeted on black voters and black votes in Detroit, um, as we're seeing uh, yes. yet again, um, in Georgia and other places. And so, you know, there's also a racial element here that is Absolutely. incredibly insidious. And so for Donald Trump or anyone else to suggest that using the Constitution to hold him accountable is anti-democratic, one, does, you know, misses the entire point of Section 3, but also ignores the reality of how we got here in the first place. Absolutely, Donald. Um, we, you know, people say, let the voters decide. Well, we let the voters decide. And Donald Trump said, no, 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 voters, you can't have it your way. We've been there. We've done this. And as you mentioned, yesterday we had this bombshell report, um, more evidence piling on of Donald Trump's insurrection efforts with um, this report from Detroit News um, of the recording of that Wayne County canvassers meeting where Trump was pressuring Wayne County canvassers not to certify the 2020 vote. Um, just flagrant, flagrant, as you mentioned, um, often race motivated efforts to disenfranchise voters and take away that choice of so a notion that we should um, give someone who has disqualified himself that opportunity again um, is is ridiculous. Um, Donald, another kind of ridiculous, I think, on the scale of ridiculousness, this one's pretty high. Uh, criticism that I've um, that I've come across is that um, this judicial opinion just is it relies on you know just old, old, old um, you know precedents and information, <laughs> like everything that you know I read the opinion, it was so detailed, it went into uh, the congressional um, not 39th Congress and debates over whether they knew that Section 3 uh, defined the presidency as an office, um, went back to debates from 1866. And some of the critics are saying, oh, this is relying on such old dated information I'm like our whole country i guess we should just throw everything out because uh we're you know we're this country's too old to uh rely on any kind of foundation that we've had thus far right yeah i mean i think it speaks to a couple of things one um donald trump is an outlier right we thankfully we haven't had to rely on section three because we haven't had insurrections against the constitution of the united states um that warranted this tool being used since the Reconstruction era. Uh, but again, the reason why we had to find that tool and dust it off for this moment is because of Donald Trump's actions. You know, I am grateful that it was there and that, you know, in the Reconstruction period, there were cases that were brought and people stood up and said, yeah, no, we're not going to have Confederates and insurrectionists in our government because there was a body of law that we could uh, look to. But also, more fundamentally, you know, the Constitution doesn't have an expiration date. Exactly. I guess um, we should probably just stop using Trump. the First Amendment, the Second Amendment. You know, they're just they're so old at this point. Right. Yeah. Right. You, you never hear uh, anybody 
uh, you know, talking about how other constitutional provisions are, you know, just sort of inert from uh, not being used. Um, and so, you know, I don't, I don't think those arguments are especially serious. Not at all. And it's, and, and, you know, what's so, um, not surprising, but uh, revealing is they, they're coming from these so-called conservatives or defenders of Trump who so often are saying that liberals or the Democrats are trying to shred our constitution and the work of our founders. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, so make uh, up yeah. your mind. <laughs> There's not a lot of consistency there. Not a lot, not a lot. Um, I, speaking of conservatives, I know that you had a lot of um, support in this case in Colorado, amicus briefs filed. Um, I know in the um, presidential immunity claim that Donald Trump is making in his criminal cases, um, 